0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Hear God's word to us. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: You ever had that moment, um, <clears throat> that sick feeling that you knew something wasn't right? <laughs> you couldn't put your finger on it, but you knew your plans were going to change forever? Um, Well, good morning, my name is Gabe Coyle, and to answer some of your questions, no, this is not a clip-on tie, so let's just get that out the gate. Um, (laughs) I am the campus pastor here at Christ Community's downtown campus, and it's a pleasure to see you all this morning. Uh, This last weekend, I had the opportunity with a few others to visit our church, our global church partner, Projekt Kirke, um, which is, in English, is Project Church. They're a church plant in Berlin, Germany, And our trip, it kind of started off fairly normal. You know, we had one connection flight in Newark, New Jersey. We'd hired a travel agent to make sure all the pieces were put in place. The I's were dotted. You know, the T's were crossed, all this. And there was a moment when we arrived in the Kansas City airport, and we were about to take off, that we realized that our flight from Kansas City to Newark was going to land after our connection flight in Newark to Berlin was already gonna begin boarding. So roughly we had about 10 minutes to change flights. Or we were gonna have like this terminal type situation, you know? (laughs) And so as we're landing in Newark, people are looking out their windows and they're taking pictures of the New York City skyline. Well in the back of my mind, all I'm doing is thinking through various scenarios and how we're gonna make this work, right? Then we come to find out that our gate is located in a different terminal building to which we have to take a shuttle because why make it easy, you know? So anyway, after maybe the longest five minutes of my life, I think the bus driver was doing his best, but I'm sure he took a 60-point turn just to turn around, and we got to our terminal building. We had five minutes left, 30 gates to go, so I sprint. I'm literally sprinting with my little rolly cart, you know, spinning and weaving, looking out for children, most of them. I took a couple out. And then a little car, you know, that was always driving those people around. I probably looked like Jerry Rice, maybe 150th like Jerry Rice. Maybe that's still too generous. But anyway, I see our gate. We have one minute left. I look at my watch. There's the plane. It's connected to the ramp. I'm sweating, I'm excited, I see the airport staff, I come, I say triumphantly, I'm here for the flight to Berlin, when in reality, and that's what I thought I said, it was more like, I'm, I'm here, and then they gave me that look. The airport staff, you know, God bless them, but you know this look, it's the look of pity and also fear for someone who has just gone all this effort, and they just shut the gate maybe a couple minutes before And yeah, you say, ah, because you know they all have to do is press four little buttons and all my problems would disappear. Just a couple seconds and our trip would be great. But no amount of begging, no amount of pleading, short of a presidential decree was going to open that door. And so there I stood, sweaty, frustrated, probably more at the airport staff, even though it wasn't even their fault, wondering and helpless what's next, right? And I think far too often we approach Jesus in the same way as the airport staff. We're chasing after a relationship. We're spinning and weaving for a promotion. We think to ourselves, once we finally arrived, once we finally graduated, once we've just got through midterms, once we've made enough money, once I get the cure to this ongoing ailment that is driving me nuts, Jesus, if you just fix this, then I'll be happy. Jesus, just four little buttons the smallest movement for you, and it would change my entire life. But Jesus doesn't really follow our protocol, does he? And we can interpret that in many ways, one of which is that Jesus just doesn't really care. He's not paying attention. Or maybe we can come to think that really this whole Christian faith thing is nothing but a sham to begin with. And what we find out about Jesus, what we see in our passage this morning, is that nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus wants to help more than you think. Wherever you are in your journey this morning, Jesus cares more about your story than you ever thought. It's not that he doesn't care about your work, your relationships, or your worry. What we come to find out, he just cares more deeply than you ever could have imagined. You see, Jesus wants to help more than you think with more than you think. As a church, we've been walking through the gospel account of Matthew. Matthew's eyewitness engagements with Jesus. And I want you to think about that because Matthew, he walked and talked with Jesus. He heard from Jesus' own lips who Jesus proclaimed to be. He saw some of the amazing things that Jesus did. He followed Jesus' life. He was shocked by his death and actually encountered the resurrected Jesus. And, and I know if you've gone to church at, on Easter at any moment in your life, That Matthew 9 isn't the typical (laughs) Resurrection Sunday passage. And yet I can't help but see this as such a beautiful passage about our resurrection. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. If you've got one of our community Bibles, it's actually found on page number 813. And while we walk through our passage, we're going to see how your problem is worse than you think. His solution can feel too good to be true, but then how the resurrection answers both. How your problem is worse than you think, his solution can feel too good to be true, and the resurrection answers both, okay? Well, as we turn to our story this morning, we see how Matthew 19, or Matthew 9, you just heard it read, goes quickly from being kind of comical to really awkward and then lands with this insulting tone, Because think about this. Jesus, he's at the height of his career. Everybody knows he's a phenomenal preacher that comes to speak truth that is astounding the audience. But he's also known as a miracle worker. I mean, he just has to touch, to speak, or even look in your general direction and you'll be healed. I mean, all those ailments, those demons, those hurts that have haunted you for years, gone. Four little buttons in a world of change. Mm -hmm. And there's a group of friends Who heard that this Jesus is back in town. And they're bound and determined to get their friend who's paralyzed before him. Because nothing's worse worse than being paralyzed in the ancient Near Eastern world. There are no wheelchairs. There are no ramps. You're carried from place to place. Eventually, friends and families look at you and they get annoyed with caring and having to care for you. The broader society thinks that you're nothing more than a suck on the system. So yeah, this guy's got problems. Existentially, physically, emotionally. And now's his chance to re-engage society, to be healed, to get his legs. And what does Jesus say? Verse 2, take heart, my son. Here it comes. What does Jesus say? This is the, the magic words, right? Everybody's hoping and getting ready for what everybody anticipates. And then instead, your sins are forgiven. Wait, what? <laughs> I can imagine you could hear a pin drop around this place at this moment. Or even just thinking about what's going on in the guy's mind who's paralyzed. Forgiveness. Pretty good. You know, I'm not, hey, I'm not ungr- grateful here, you know. This is really good. Keep it coming. Um, if I wanted forgiveness, though, I could have gone to temple. The real issue here, Jesus, the real reason my friends went through all of this was because my legs... My legs are the real problem here. And that's exactly it, isn't it? You see, Jesus knows his problem is worse than he thinks. And whatever you're going through this morning, your problem is worse than you think. You see, your biggest problem isn't actually your problems. And Jesus isn't making light of this man and his paralysis, by no means. But with his one statement, he now elevates that the biggest problem isn't your relationships. It's not your work. It's not even your health. Your problem is worse than you think. And that's because your problem isn't what's going on out there. Not first and foremost. It's not even physical, although it can have physical ramifications. Your problem is in here. And if you've been following Matthew as he's been recording what Jesus has taught, time and again, he returns and he zeroes in on the heart. He won't let us blame our brokenness purely on our circumstances. Not alone. They have a part to play, but it's not exclusively our circumstances. It has everything to do with the core of who we are and how we choose self-destruction over wholeness time and time again and how this then breeds brokenness in our relationships, how it calls us to hurt others, how that calls us to ostracize and even oppress others, even the ultimate other, God himself. And all of that can be summed up in what the biblical writers time and again call Sin. And the result of this brokenness made afresh in our lives is death. Now, in the short term, that looks like broken relationships, leaving a wave of destruction with friends and family, constantly asking, why does everybody else have the issue? And then in the end of your life, it'll take your very breath away. I mean, what if Jesus did just heal this guy's legs? What if he gave this guy exactly what he wanted? What if Jesus always gave us exactly what we wanted when we were 12, when we were 16, when we were 18, 21, 30, 40, 60, 80? If the eternal God just trusted that we knew what was best for us always and only. Sure, he would have been able to walk. For a good period of his life, 50, 60, 80 years. But then when death came knocking on his door, then what? You see, Jesus, he always has his eye on the long game, always has eternity in mind. And he wants to deal with some of the deepest wounds we've learned to ignore an ache each and every one of us knows all too well, a desire for forgiveness. You know, if you've heard of the band 21 Pilots, they're pretty popular right now. They're not necessarily Christian artists by any stretch of the imagination. And yet one of their songs, they're very transparent about a human struggle. Not a Christian struggle, but a human struggle. And listen to what they sing. Death inspires me like a dog inspires a rabbit. Can you save, can you save my, can you save my heavy, dirty soul? If you're honest with yourself, you know you need forgiveness for the private things that no one else knows about that's eating you from the inside out, for the public things you wish people would just forget. But who's going to forgive and how? Because it can't be you because you're a part of the problem. And your problem's worse than you think. So who's going to save my dirty, ugly soul that's so heavy with guilt and shame I can't carry any longer. Well, right here in our passage, Jesus stands with all the authority of heaven and he says, I will. I will. Which is a pretty tall order. If you've ever wrestled with your own guilt or shame, you know how his solution can feel too good to be true. You know how his solution can feel too good to be true. I mean, this guy came to get his legs healed. But Jesus wants to help more than you think with more than you think. So let's turn back to our story. You know, after Jesus says these eight little words, some people, people who actually know their Bibles really well, the Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis through Malachi, the Hebrew Scriptures are what they had at the time. The New Testament hadn't been written by Jesus' followers yet. The Tanakh. And what they knew... It's not that just Jesus sometimes would heal people and not even bring up that they're sinners and internally broken. It's that when Jesus said what he said to them, it sounded like Jesus was committing blasphemy. You see, most people knew that the temple sacrifices didn't actually bring forgiveness or that the priests actually didn't have the authority to forgive. They were vessels by which God, who only had the authority and power to forgive, was working through. And when Jesus said what he said, he was saying that he was God, the creator and sustainer of the world. And it's this kind of stuff that made people want to kill Jesus. And if you don't believe that Jesus is God, you should be pretty ticked at this too. But how does Jesus respond to the frustrations and the anger of people who knew their Bibles? Let's look here at verse verse 6, or verse 5, sorry. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Now, at first blush, (laughs) I know what I think is easier. I think it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, because you can't prove me otherwise. It's like, hey, Larry, your sins are forgiven. They are? Yeah, prove otherwise. Touche, right? But, But if I go up to the same guy who happens to be in a hospital bed, and I say, hey, Larry, you're healed, get up. And he doesn't because he can't. It also, it not only proves that I'm a sham, it also proves I'm a really big jerk. Right? That's what we think. But Jesus, the grammar and also the context shows that what Jesus is actually saying is that the more difficult thing is to forgive someone of their sins. Because only God has the rightful authority and power to do that, to relieve you of the burden of guilt and shame. Only God can do that. But since you question my authority to forgive sins, I'm going to do the easier thing for you, Jesus says. And look what he does here in verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man, that's a, that's a title he gave himself that reveals both his humanity and his divinity, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who'd given such authority to men. Now, I know as soon as you hear that, you may be thinking, okay, Gabe, I believe that this guy named Jesus, he was in the first century, okay? He said some pretty amazing things. He did some pretty amazing stuff, but this, look, we're not as gullible as we were back then. We know science. We know history, You can't actually expect me to believe this actually happened, can you? Well, why not? You see, good science and thoughtful history never precludes mystery, but it only is an invitation to explore it. And to do good thought work, what you come to recognize actually is that even the most critical of historians will admit that across the region, people understood and thought of Jesus as a miracle worker. So let's dive into this a bit. Let's think that Jesus was manipulating the crowds and trying to do a fake healing with a person who wasn't actually paralyzed. The town's small enough that everybody would have known this guy and his friends and him would have been exposed with Jesus along with them. It would have never flown. Okay, well, let's talk about Matthew because he's the guy who's recording all of this some 40 years after it happened, right? Let's get some perspective. Imagine you write a story about something magnificent that changed the landscape of a town in 1976. (laughs) Who's going to believe you? It only takes a couple credible witnesses who were around at the time who may be sitting in this room right now who remember 1976 very well to discredit your story. Let alone, what would it take to now start a movement that has lasted and grown over the past 2,000 years? Don't you think there would be some people who say, yeah, that's ridiculous. I was there. I knew this guy. And the legend would die. But I think the most compelling thing of all is what happens in the passage following. We're not going to spend much time here today. We're going to spend some time next week. But right after this story, Matthew tells his story. The author, the one who has recorded this history, and he tells of his life and giving it to Jesus. He was a tax collector. He lived a more comfortable life than most and he leaves it all behind to follow Jesus and eventually to die for Jesus and his message. Now, listen, a guy who can write 28 chapters of a brilliant story and do history isn't going to give his life away for something he hasn't researched and that he doesn't himself believe as best as you possibly can believe anything. This man was convinced of his own eyewitness accounts and the eyewitness accounts of others. And here's the last thing. Don't you want this to be true? I mean, don't you even want this story to be true where healing and forgiveness are possible? I don't want you to get me wrong. I don't want you to think that I'm saying that if you want something to be true, then it's guaranteed to be true like a Disney Cinderella story, okay? but what if there's this ache that's deep within you that resonates when you hear this story that isn't just some evolutionary misfire, but it's actually the way in which you were designed and it's your body, it's your very heart crying out for truth. And what God has always intended for you was Jesus Christ. And that there's a day coming where forgiveness is possible. Where there is such a thing as evil and it's actually judged appropriately. Where those who are wrestling with diseases are made whole. Paralytics can actually walk again. And if not Jesus, then what? Who else or what else can say both? Your sins are forgiven and rise up and walk. And that's why even though there isn't a picture of a tomb... There isn't even the mention of the word resurrection in this passage. I think it has everything to do with our resurrection. Because only the resurrection answers both. If you go back to Matthew chapter 1, we see that Matthew calls Jesus, or records that the angel calls Jesus Emmanuel, which means God with us. And what we see in chapter 1 is that his name, Jesus, Jesus, actually means he will save his people from their sins. And do so by dying on a cross. But maybe you're thinking, Gabe, I, I, okay, I'm, I'm following, but why doesn't God just forgive and forget like the rest of us? Why the cross? If you've ever been hurt, I mean really hurt, and you've had to forgive, you know no one just forgives. No one ever just forgives. But forgiveness always requires a sort of death. Always. You had a best friend who ruined your reputation through gossip. A parent who destroyed your upbringing. A spouse who obliterated your trust. Forgiveness means dying to bitterness, dying to revenge. You see, whenever anybody wrongs anyone, someone has to pay. Either, and this is what we often do, we make them pay through suffering and, you know, not answering the phone or not replying to a Facebook message and letting them kind of stew in their own pain because we're going to make them pay. Or forgiveness says, I will pay for that. I release you. I will absorb that pain into myself. And that doesn't mean your reputation will get better. That doesn't mean your trust is intimately or instantly restored. Forgiveness is a sword of death. And what we see with Jesus here is that he came to die on a cross to pay our penalty for our sin against our creator, King. The one who gave us the very breath, the very reason that we are able to sit here and hear this this morning. With our first cry, we screamed rebellion and have lived a life pushing him away. And instead of pushing us back, he actually came into this world died the death we deserve to die, paid our penalty, and made a way of reconciliation. Forgiveness requires a death. And then he was buried. And then three days later, he rose again, conquering the result of death. And also affirming that he has the authority to forgive. And if he has the authority to forgive you and I, he now can provide even a resilient life for you and I, for the wages of sin have been dealt with and sin itself has been extinguished for all who place their faith in Jesus Christ. And now he stands with all the authority of heaven and longs to say to each and every one of us, take heart, my child, my son, my daughter, Your sins are forgiven. And if he can do that, according to the words of Jesus, if he can really deal with the hidden brokenness that no medication or any type of surgery can heal, then how much more can he do the easier thing? To actually say, rise up and walk. You see, just because Jesus is concerned and chiefly concerned with our biggest problem, that doesn't mean he's unconcerned with our many problems. He cares deeply about your life, the various details of your going on throughout your work and your week. He may not go according to your timeline, but maybe just like this paralytic, Jesus has some other things he wants to do in your life first. But make no mistake, the day is coming, and it may not be until the very last day where every wrong you have ever known will be made right. Every disappointment you have faced, every hurt you have experienced, every element of suffering you have intimately known will be made right. And I know that sounds, once again, too good to be true. How can the nightmare ever become the fairy tale? It's when we come to him in faith, helpless, that he is ever able to say, rise and walk. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you don't know what to make of Jesus. Um, Maybe you've been following Jesus for a while and you feel like he's forgotten you and your problems. You've been praying, you've been reaching out, and you feel like you get silence or even noise. I wanna point us down the path of healing that we see on display here in our passage this morning. And the first step to the path of healing is to admit you need help. In the Christian faith, we call this confession, an admittance of how broken we actually are. Look, in our passage, there's one thing everybody, without any sort of debate, knows about the guy in this passage. He knows he needs help. His friends know he needs help. Jesus knows he needs help, and you cannot go through this life without help, especially when it comes to your biggest problem of sin and guilt and shame. You can't fix this. You can't work your way out. You can't ignore your way out. You can't justify your way out. Be honest with yourself and God and admit you need help because if you can't do that, then you'll never make it down the path of healing. You're always going to be trying to figure out your own detours, and you're going to find yourself at dead end after dead end after dead end. But after you've admitted you need help, then secondly, give his help a chance. Give his help a chance. Now I know maybe some of you feel like someone drug you here this morning or carried you here. (laughs) And maybe you've looked into this Jesus thing for a while, read pages on pages and wrestled through so many debates. And maybe you even have paralysis by analysis. unsure what's the next step. I want to plead with you this morning to give his help a chance. One of the best ways to know whether Jesus is truly the son of God is to try trusting him. First admit you need his help, confess that you're broken and you need his forgiveness and then say, yes, my life is yours. Do what you will, heal me, forgive me all with the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. It's that simple. Will you give him a chance? Because you, Can you imagine if this paralytic never came to Jesus? If he never let his friends, I don't know how that would have worked, but if he never let his friends bring him to Jesus, sitting in the same spot the rest of his life, always wondering what if, embittered in his heart, That doesn't have to be your story and that's not the story we see here this morning. Instead, we see a man who'd heard what Jesus had done and who he proclaimed to be and he trusted him with his life and he took the chance of a lifetime and it made the change of his life for all time. And even now, he is forgiven and freed, standing with the one whose nails or his feet were pierced for our transgressions, who took on the paralysis of our guilt and shame upon himself on the cross, who was buried, and three days later, not even death could hold him down on his back, but was resurrected and walked out of the tomb. And what we read in Matthew 28 is that where does does Mary run when she sees Jesus for the first time? She grabs his legs, his feet, his touchable, his glorified feet. Not some pipe dream hallucinations, but eyewitness truth. And now with all the authority of heaven and earth, we read at the end of Matthew, Jesus longs for each and every one of us to hear the words, Take heart, my child. Your sins are forgiven. Rise and walk. Will you let him? Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that we don't just have a Jesus who taught brilliant teachings. We praise you that we don't just have a Jesus who died in our place. We praise you that we have a Jesus who lived, who taught, who died in our place, and rose again to offer life and life everlasting. And I pray for all of us here this morning as we remember the glorious truth of the resurrection. May we not be numb to your truth, but may your Holy Spirit break through our hard hearts afresh. For those who are followers of Jesus, may we be reinvigorated that life and life everlasting is before us. For those who are exploring Jesus, God, may you give them the strength to give you a chance. And God, as we continue to pray, as we continue to worship, may we know your sweet presence even now by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for your work. Thank you for loving and being persistent with us. May we trust you. In Jesus' name. Amen.